Welcome to Season 4 of Game Design Unboxed on the No Direction Network. Danielle Reynolds talks to tabletop game designers about the games they've made. Together, they unbox how the game went from inspiration to publication. Proudly sponsored by All Play. If you're looking for a board game table, bag, playmat, or great board games, check them out at letsallplay.com. This episode of Game Design Unbox is sponsored by Launch Tabletop. Launch Tabletop is an online platform for board game creators to manufacture retail quality board games at all scales, even a single copy. Launch Tabletop is offering 20% off your next order by going to launchtabletop.com and using promo code GDU20 when checking out using their print-on-demand service, Launch Lab. Launch your next game project into the stratosphere with retail quality games at no minimums with Launch Tabletop today. Thank you for joining me, Danielle, for Game Design Unbox Inspiration to Publication, Episode 72, Disney's Sorcerer's Arena. Today, we are joined by Sean Fletcher, the designer who worked on Die Hard, It, Evil Below, Smash Up, Disney, and Marvel Editions, Talisman Star Wars, Hogwarts Battle, and all the variations on Disney's Sorcerer's Arena. Honestly, that is a lot of IPs. Thank you for being on the show. Yeah, that's a, that's a lot of IP games that I've worked on. I've worked on some others too, uh, without IPs, but the ones that stand out the most are generally the ones that have properties that, that people get really excited about. Oh, for sure. I mean, I was excited about this episode. Well, here, then how did you become a game designer? Like, how'd you get into the industry to start us off? Uh, I, like many other amazing game designers, started off as a graphic designer. Yep. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yep, same. Props. I was a graphic designer for for years. I uh, went to school in Rochester, New York, uh, graduated class of 99 at RIT. And all through my four years there, whenever I had a project that I could turn into a board game, I, you know, oh, design X, Y, and Z. Well, can it be the top of a board game box? Sure. Design a, a set of instructions for something. Oh, can it be board game instructions and rules? Sure. Okay, let me do that. Uh, so I, I was kind of, you know, sneaking my, my board game obsession into my assignments for, for a good four years there at school. I was, I was hooked on board games from a really young age. Um, my grandmother uh, taught me how to play checkers when I was about six or seven, and uh, she, she would not let me win. It was very much a you're going to, I respect it. You're going to learn this by losing a lot. Uh, yeah. sort of thing, and then uh, moved on to Scrabble and, and plenty of other you know classic traditional board games. Uh, but when I was about 13 or 14, I think that's when Hero Quest came out. And um, my friends and I, we, we would play Hero Quest, play that thing till it, it frayed and fell apart. And then we decided we were going to start making our own characters for it, making our own monsters, adding all kinds of, you know, classes and skills to the to the game and really just sort of blended hero quest with dungeons and dragons into something new that we enjoyed uh, and then i went off to, to to college like i said put board games into any project i i had uh, when i could got out of school and started a conversation with a guy named mark rosewater online uh, he's the the head of magic the gathering creative uh, and and game design and uh, I started talking to him about how modular graphic design, when you're designing systems where you can put this, this piece with that piece and use all of these different modular design units to build something bigger, mm -hmm. that's a lot like modular game design. 
i.e. Magic the Gathering, where you're giving people all of these cards that are parts of a bigger game system that they can put together however they'd like. And um, he uh, eventually, in our, in our conversation online, he invited me to be a part of a design team for Shadowmoor in Magic the Gathering. And I went from living in New Hampshire with a really low-paying uh, print shop graphic design job to moving to Seattle with my then, uh, no, you know what, we had been married by then. Uh, so my wife and I got up and moved to Seattle and decided to kind of start over from scratch with barely, you know, the, the, the clothes on our back and some Ikea furniture and uh, went to Seattle. I did a couple of months as a game designer on Magic the Gathering, did not parlay that yeah. into a full-time job and went back to graphic design for a while. Oh, interesting. Okay. Uh, and then after a few years in graphic design, I... Um, found a, a studio that was looking for a graphic designer called Forest Present Creative. They hired me on as a graphic designer, but they are or were uh, a studio that invented board games for other publishers. And um, so I started there as a graphic designer. And when they realized I, I had a knack for actually creating games, they moved me out of the graphic design chair uh, into the game design chair. And I got to kind of flex my muscles there and, and, work on a, a whole range of new projects, uh, mostly kids' games, but a lot of inventions that, that turned into more robust, I guess is, is the best way to put it, IP-based games. Very cool. And then what landed you at the op? Uh, well, while I was at Forest Prezan, I led the design on an engine for a game called Harry Potter Hogwarts Battle. The engine itself did not have a license attached to it when we invented it. We, well, it it did, but it was a placeholder, and I'm not going to say what it was, uh, just because the product was never released with that IP. But we showed the game to the op, USAopoly, and they, they looked at it and said, you know what, we can put the Harry Potter license on this, and we think it's a, a, a pretty good engine for that you know, seven-year, uh, seven-game system. And after they, they had some success with that, they, uh, they found out that I was looking for greener, not, not greener pastures, but, but other places to go uh, with my skill set. And they said, you know, if you're looking at, at leaving Seattle, why not come to San Diego? And they sort of cut out the middleman. They, they got the designer that, that had made some products that they published, and they brought me in-house directly. And uh, it's been a great five-plus years since then. That's so awesome. All right. And then let's scoot over to Disney Sorcerer Arena. Sure. How did that project come about? That's one where, and it's funny because people often ask, like, how did you get that license? And honestly, it, it fell in our laps. Disney every year does this big licensing summit with all of the, the game publishers and toy manufacturers and product creators, and they show off all of the new licenses that they're going to to be working with publishers and, and producers on and we went to a meeting we talked they, they talked to us about this movie and that movie and this show that was coming up and then they pulled us aside and said we've got this mobile game that we're working on too and we think it might be a really good tabletop game but we're not tabletop game creators we we do the we've got a team that does the interactive mobile stuff what do you think you could do with this? And they told us about Disney Sorcerer's Arena. 
which was going to be a digital battle arena game where you picked a, a roster of, or you picked a, a crew of five characters from a roster of like 80 something characters. Uh, and you, you put your characters in the, the arena against another player's characters and you just sort of like a, a JRPG video game, you select the actions for your characters turn by turn and they would do their thing and they would hit each other and take down each other's hit points or give each other status effects. And then it was someone else's turn and they hit you back. And it was, it was just this neat little back and forth battle arena where the roster they had let you mix heroes and villains from Disney and Pixar, and Saturday morning cartoons and live action. And it was just this really deep set of, of characters to mix and match. And when we saw that, we all just kind of went, yeah, this is cool. This is really cool. This is something that hasn't been done before on tabletop. Let's, let's explore this. Let's see what we can do with it. So from there, I, I kind of deconstructed what it was I liked about the game and what I would want mm -hmm. to, to see happen if I were, if I were you know, getting to, to daydream and build whatever I wanted, what kind of game would I want that to be? And, and I definitely decided really quickly that I wanted it to be something that was deep enough that it could be played on a competitive strategic level. I mentioned earlier that I got to work on Magic uh, early in my career. Magic is still a huge influence for me. I play it all the time. And I wanted to, to create something with Disney Sorcerer's Arena Epic Alliances that could kind of tap into those same dopamine hits that, that come from you know, playing a good strategic game of Magic and, and pulling off the win when it looks like you know, it's, it's out of your grasp. Just those really exciting moments. So I started sort of from the 10,000-foot the, the view and said, what do I want this experience to feel like? And then as I, as I got closer and closer to the, the nuts and bolts of the game, I was figuring out what kind of mechanics I could be inspired by from other games that, that gave me those similar dopamine rushes. And if you look at, at Disney Sorcerer's Arena Epic Alliances, you're going to see a lot of the influences there come from games like Gloomhaven, of all things, and Smash Up and Magic, and Unmatched is one that, that has some DNA in there. Just a lot of games that I, I really enjoy playing, that I, I saw things in those games that I liked and things that I thought maybe you know could, could have been a little more polished one way or another. And I kind of deconstructed everything, took it all apart, and put it all back together in a way that let me take these characters from, from Disney movies and, and shows, bring them all into the arena in a way that felt loyal to, to who those characters are in the first place. And then just let them go, just just fight it out and see what happens and, and see where the dust settles. Very cool. And so for anyone who hasn't played the game, would you mind describing how the game's played? Sure. Disney Sorcerer's Arena Epic Alliances, or, or DSA as we, we call it in-house, it is a battle arena skirmish game. You pick three characters from the core set has eight characters, uh, and there are four expansions, each with three. So grand total, 20 characters right now. You pick any three characters from that roster. Each character has a 10-card deck of cards. You shuffle those cards together. You put your characters on a board that has sort of a hexagon structure. There's a couple of spaces in the middle of the board that are worth victory points if you can hold on to them King of the Hill style. And you use your deck of cards to move your three characters around the board, 
capture those spaces and knock each other out. Every character has their own hit point value, so they can take so many hits before they're knocked out. And they have a victory point value, which is sort of a, a bounty on them. If I knock out your Ariel, she's worth four points, and then you come over and knock out my Sully, and he's worth seven points. So you're you're just sort of tallying up your, your victory points for the knockouts as the game goes along. And then when either player has 20 or more victory points, or a player would draw a card from their deck, but there's no cards left, that triggers the final round. You play out the rest of the turns for each of the characters, and whoever has the most points wins. Very cool. So did you get to choose who would be in the first game? Like, did you pick like your favorite Disney characters? Was it something like, here, we want you to make these? How did that so go? So we were presented with a roster of characters from the mobile game that, like I said at the start, there were about 80 characters in the roster. And by the time I got to really crafting characters for the game, they were up closer to 110, 120. And, and by the time I finished picking my first eight characters, they were up to like 140. So they, they just kept adding characters so fast. Uh, there's, there's really no shortage of characters there. As long as we have the go-ahead to keep making the game, there's going to be characters for us to use. So in that first set of eight, ironically, I, I actually, in my, my very first roster pitch to Disney, I forgot to put Mickey in it. And they, they looked at me like, what is wrong with you? You need to have Mickey in there. And I said, yeah, that's, that's kind of a big oversight, isn't it? So I went back and I, I pulled one of the characters and benched them for a future set and drew up a, a draft of Sorcerer's Apprentice Mickey where he could, he could summon brooms into the arena to fight for him. But as far as picking that, that initial eight roster, it was all about getting a wide selection that showed Disney and Pixar and the Disney afternoon cartoons from 30 years ago. I grew up watching you know, DuckTales and Gargoyles in the afternoon after I got home from school. So our initial roster is, hold on, let me, let me make sure I've got my reference. I was going to say it's Maleficent. Maleficent, Aladdin, Aladdin yeah. Ariel, Mickey, uh, mm-hmm. um, Sully, Demona from Gargoyles, Dr. Facilier, and Gaston. I thought the gargoyle one was probably the character that surprised me the most. We get that a lot. There's a lot of people who look at her and say, who is that? I don't get that. And then there's people that look at her and go, OMG, you brought in a character from gargoyles. That's so awesome. And that's, you know, that's a great feeling when you surprise someone in the best possible way with, with giving them something that they relate to from their youth or for, you know, whatever emotional reason that, that, Aladdin's their favorite character ever, or or Maleficent is the villain they've always kind of felt they identify with the most. Just having mm-hmm. those characters there for people to say, I don't just like playing that character, I'm just excited that, that character's there in the first place. Very true. And so I know with the characters, you kind of do like a snake draft in order to pick your three if you're playing a two-player game? Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of ways to do it. I think uh, most casual players just grab their three that they that they like playing and, and put them on the table. Uh, mm-hmm. But if you've only got one kit between the two of you, um, snake draft is is a great way to do it. I get my first pick, you get two picks, I get two picks, and then you get your third pick. And because there's eight characters in that core set, your your last pick still is meaningful because there's three characters for you to pick from. You're not just getting 
the leftover last character. And then the more the more expansions you add to the mix, the, the, the deeper that pool gets. And do you find that how you combine the characters is super relevant? Or do you think like if people completely randomly chose just based off their favorite characters, it's totally fine? I think when you're learning the game, going random and just saying, I like this one and this one and this one, perfectly fine. If, you know, do whatever you're comfortable with to learn the game. But once you start playing competitively, there's an upgrade system built into these characters where there's effectively four different, I guess, flavors of, of characters. There's on their cards, uh, there are these symbols called gears, and there are four different kinds of gears. There's a, a yellow, a pink, a red, and a blue. And once those cards are in your discard pile, you can use those cards to pay for upgrades on characters. And the upgrade flips over the character card, gives them a, new, a, a couple of new abilities. But really, when you want to start taking advantage of those, those upgrades strategically, you put a lot more thought into who your team is up front, because not every character provides the same assortment of gears. And if every character has a different recipe for what their upgrade is, you're going to have, have to have a wide variety of gears going into your discard pile to pay for those upgrade recipes. So putting together a, a set of characters like, we'll say, Ariel and Sully and Mrs. Potts from the newest set might do some cool things and give you a really defensive team that, that can heal itself up a lot. But because you've picked three characters that all have a blue-themed gear set assigned to their cards they're not going to be able to upgrade as well because you're, you're overstocked on one set of gears and understocked on another when it comes to trying to pay for the upgrade recipe. That's so interesting. And would you mind walking people through what a character card has on it and like what each part means? Sure, sure. Let me show you right here on the audio podcast. Um, <laughs> every so and to the right you will notice yeah cards you will be exactly drawing at the beginning of the game so yes. you've normally you've got your your deck of cards 10 cards and those cards can be either action cards or, or movement cards depending on on you know what phase of your turn you're in you're going to use cards for one thing or the other and that card will have a name it'll have an illustration the the art in the game is fantastic and i'm not just saying that because i, I worked on it the artist, artist that did the, uh, the custom illustrations, Patrick Spazianti, is fantastic. So you've got a, a name for a card, an illustration on the card, and then there's a big block of card text that just says what this card does when you play it during the right character's turn. And, and those are pretty simple. You, you, you play the card, you do their thing, and you're done with them. But then each character also has an oversized sort of a 3 by 5 card that has their picture on it, it has a list of their their core statistics, their their victory point level, their health points, uh, the number of cards that that go in your hand when you're using that character. It'll give you the stats for their basic movement, their basic attack power, and then it'll give them a skill. And their skill varies from from one character to another. So, uh, for example, Sully. If he hasn't moved yet in the turn, he can teleport from one door to another. He can travel by door uh, and, and just sort of port himself from one side of the board to the other. Aladdin has two skills. One, he can sort of pick his his enemies, or enemies his rivals' pockets and nice. look for an apple. If he finds the apple, he, he gains some health. He can also discard cards to become stealthy. 
so he can hide and, and, and go full parkour uh, mode and, and just kind of travel through the, the streets of Agrabah uh, with a little bit of stealth there. Ariel is good at healing with her skill. Maleficent likes to draw extra cards based on how many characters she's damaged in a turn for her skill. So these are all things that, that really customize the experience of playing with individual characters. And then when you, when you do the upgrade, you flip that card over and it adds uh, an ability to the back that sometimes it's, it's a one-time trigger. When you flip the card, it does this one big thing and then you're done. Other times it's a, an ability that, that, checks throughout the course of the game to see when certain things happen, creates triggers and, and good stuff like that. No, that's so interesting. And as far as the beginning, when you have like the initiative on each of them in order to like kind of rank where things are going, mm-hmm. how did you decide initiative for the different characters? Like what was that based <laughs> off of? I just, I'm curious. Disney, like, Disney asked me the same question once and they said, we don't have that in our game. How did you decide those? And I said, Sully looks like he'd be a little on the slow side. Robin Hood looks like he'd be really fast. Aladdin's definitely fast. And they said, so you just pick numbers? And I was like, yeah, <laughs> I just put them all in the line and decided who looked like they'd be faster than the others and gave them numbers. Mickey, that is Mickey, so funny. Is, Mickey is like the Mario of this game. You know, if you've, if you've played Smash Brothers, oh, I, Mario yeah, is always like the ultimate average He's not phenomenal yeah. at anything, but he's not bad at anything either. So I decided that Mickey would have like a 50 initiative out of 100 because Mickey is like our Mario. He's average speed. And then from there, everyone was was either faster or slower than than Mickey. And that was kind of the formula. I just love that Mickey is the bar. And he was the one you forgot. He was the one I forgot. Yeah. In the beginning. But, as you were using him as the bar for this. You know, in a way, Amazing. I'm almost happy that I forgot Mickey in the initial build because that meant that mm-hmm. when I had to go back and create Mickey, I'd already made eight other characters. So I had the experience of seeing what works and what doesn't work. And in the end, in that core set, Mickey is my hands down favorite character to play. Wow. Aren't you supposed to be non-biased and not say your no, favorite? No, I, I, I'll totally tell you that like Mickey's my favorite in the corset and the Horned King is my favorite overall. Mrs. Potts, I, I love what Mrs. Potts does and I, I get a massive kick out of uh, seeing people's first reactions to, to seeing Mrs. Potts in a battle arena. So how did this game initially look compared to where it's at now? Like, what were the changes through development? Did it always have, like, the map that it currently started Boy, with? all these questions about visual stuff that we still can't show anyone. I uh, know, but it's also super important yeah. since this is a battle arena yeah. where you are moving your pieces around and you're trying to have them to, like, gain victory yeah. points by being in those, like, three middle ones. Like, it's important. So, Describe like it. Like I had said uh, earlier, one of my big influences going into this game was was Gloomhaven and it's a hex board and I had a good feel for sort of the geometry and and mileage that that characters should or could be able to cover in an average move I knew I wanted characters to move two to three spaces a turn four spaces if they did something really spectacular or if they were a really fast character and then from there knowing that uh, if I didn't want characters to occupy those victory point spaces at the center on turn one i had to make sure that the average character movement couldn't quite get them there so that sort of geometry really inspired the 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 board and 
if you've never seen the board before, it's it's almost like a football shape with the, the tips of the football cut off at either end to make it a really long hexagon made of smaller hexagons. And you start the, the game in the back two rows of, of your end of the board and you're moving towards your opponent's end of the board usually sort of congregating around those center spaces because they are worth free victory points if you can hold on to them for a full round. And, and you know, the, the, the secret of those is that you don't typically don't win the game by soaking up those victory points. You win the game by getting the knockouts. But you get the knockouts because everyone's trying to grab those victory points. Yeah, it's kind of a king yeah, of the hill. I love that. Yeah, you're going to get more points from knocking someone down than, than by keeping that space. But if you let your opponent, if you ignore your opponent and let them have those spaces for too long, uh, they'll pick up enough points that it'll offset any knockouts that, that you could have gotten in that same time. What made you decide to do 20 victory points as one of the end conditions? 20 seemed like a pretty standard number for a lot of games. Magic is based on 20. If you look at, you know, Lorcana's coming up, Lorcana looks for 20 lore. D20s are used for, for tracking points in a lot of games. So having 20 be my, my kind of baseline that I started with allowed me to start figuring out how much uh, a character's victory point value should be. And I knew a character like Sully was going to be, you know, top tier seven victory points for somebody that's really hard to knock out. If you knock him out three times, you hit that 20 point threshold. And I wanted to see at least three KOs in every game. So if you go in with, with three big characters like Sully or Gaston, three KOs probably is enough to get you to that closeout. Whereas if you go in with smaller characters like Ariel and Mickey, who are each worth only four victory points, you force your opponent to knock them out five times each or, or five times total to get to the, the 20 points. It just felt like a, a good number that gave me flexibility in strategies as to how do I want to get those 20 points or how do I want to force my opponent mm-hmm. to work towards those 20 points. And can you walk us through what a knockout looks like? Sure. Uh, every, every turn you get the opportunity to move your character around the board and use cards or basic actions to attack other characters. Uh, the baseline attack for, for most characters is two points. On average, characters have about eight, eight and a half hit points. They never have a half a hit point, but averages work that way. And, and so you go in and you're, you're swinging away with two-point attacks, three-point attacks. Sometimes your cards get you a four-point attack. So a character will generally stand up to three attacks before they get knocked out. When they lose their last uh, health point, they get KO'd, they get taken off the board. The rival summoner gets the victory points for that KO. So if, like, for example, Demona has the ability to KO herself or her own teammates. Well, if you go in with a, a knock-my-own-guys-out strategy, that's, that's not going to work. If Demona knocks herself out, your opponent gets the points for the knockout because odds are they did the majority of the damage that got her within knockout range. So once a character is knocked out, the rival summoner gets the points for those for that, that character, and the character is removed from the arena until their next turn. So they do respawn uh, at the start of their next turn. A character that's been knocked out is never out of the game for good. They will come back. 
and and when they come back you can put them at either end of the board so if the fight has migrated towards your side of the board you can put them you know near near the fight but if the fight has migrated to your rival's side of the board you can bring your characters in over there and and be right back in the middle of the the matchup very cool. And then you added also the summoner's deck running out as a secondary way the game could end. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that things end both directions or do people tend to end the game with the victory You know, points? it's it's funny because uh, we just ran our, our uh, Road to Gen Con tournament series last year. We had nine stops at stores all over the country where players were facing off with the, the, the best of the other players in their regions trying to win trophies and prizes and ultimately a, a trip to Gen Con. There was a stop in Salt Lake City where the, the guy that eventually won that regional championship played in his last match. He drew his last card on the last ter- on the second to last turn of the round. They were tied at 18 points going into that last round. And the clock, because we had everyone on a, on a 50-minute timer for the round, the clock went off just as that round was starting. So he had three different ways his game was going to end, all in the same round. He, he'd hit time, so this was the final round. He drew his last card, so this was the final round. And the next knockout was going to put somebody over that threshold and force the final round. So it's not uncommon at, at you know a 30-card deck and 20 victory points being your goal, it's not uncommon at all to get to a, a phase where there's maybe two cards left in the deck when the when the final score is uh, recorded. Super cool. Yeah, I always like it when it's kind of very close either way, so you don't actually know what's going to end mm-hmm. it. Yeah, and, and it, you know, there, there are strategies in the game where um, you could play, in Magic, they refer to it as, as self-milling. You can play a deck where your, your whole goal is to draw as many cards as you can quickly so that the end game actually happens around earlier than it might have otherwise. And at that point, the question is just, do I have more points than you? So if I've got like a 14 to 12 edge and I can dump my entire deck into my discard pile and have no cards left to draw and that triggers it, then I win the game by two points, but it's below that 20 point threshold. For sure. Okay, so I have another question that is also semi-visual, and so (laughs) feel free to make fun of me and continue to make fun of me. But also, when you do set up and you have the characters off to the side and they kind of go back and forth and you got your little turn tracker to indicate whose turn is and which character, which I think is a great, great idea because people forget things. But also, you have it where status tiles are added to that yeah. would you mind explaining how those work uh so they're what they are yeah the the turn order uh sort of sequence as as you described it is a set of these little hourglass or, or bow tie shaped tiles so when you put them all end to end you get this kind of seesaw uh, visual effect happening and the the status effects are these little chevron shaped tiles that that can kind of nestle and tessellate into each other and, and that really just came from me wanting to be able to give characters modifications over the course of the game, but not being sure how to illustrate that. And when we started working on this, it was 2020, and the world had sort of come to an end in late February, early March of 2020. And I'm working on this in like April, May, and I had to figure out how to just 
prototype something at my at my desk. So I started cutting out little pieces of cardboard in in the shape of a chevron and tucking them into those turn order tiles. And the more we played with them, the the, the that way, the more we realized, you know what, it it just does the job right. It doesn't need to be fancy. I had thought about are there ways to put flags on the characters themselves on the board so that you can see this character's immobilized because it's got a flag on it. And that was impractical and didn't look good. And I tried, you know, do you do you put counters on people's character ability cards? But it was easy to forget to take those off when you were moving the the, the turn order thing. Just having those gotcha. chevrons right there at the turn order row made it very visual. And you could just look and see what every character's status was and very easily count down, you know, when those status effects were going to go away, fade out and so on and so forth. So it really was just sort of a, a serendipitous, let me, let me try something that just has to be functional. And then in the long run, that, that function was strong enough that we just kept what the original prototype had been. Now that's pretty cool. When you can come up with an interesting component that helps remind players what to do, but also is an interesting shape because my eyes immediately gravitated towards it. I was like, ooh, what's this? And then I was like, oh, that's what it does cool yeah yeah there's a there's a lot of that in there to to kind of double back to an earlier question you'd asked about the the visual of the board and how that uh sort mm -hmm. of evolved i'm a graphic designer by by trade and by nature so there's a lot in this game when you look at the 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 way the battle cards are set up or the character cards are set up if i were to show you a prototype card you'd be kind of surprised how similar they are to the end card and I think a lot of that comes down to, uh, from the, the game design side of things, when I'm building a new game and play testing it and prototyping it, the last thing I want is for the user interface to be a detractor to the experience. So I figure I've got the skills as a graphic designer to make the information design clear and clean. Let me do that. Uh, let, me, let me take that away as a, as a barrier to entry to playing this game. So I, when, I, when I sat down with the art team at, at the op to really lock in what everything was going to look like in the final product, I handed over my prototype files and they're built in InDesign, which anyone in just about anyone in, in art production these days is going to say, yeah, that's, that's what I use. I use InDesign, I use Illustrator. But I was able to hand the art team InDesign files that basically had a pre-built template and they just had to reskin that template with the style guide art and and the original style guide elements that they created for the game but yeah our prototype pieces look remarkably similar to the finished product i think that's really like awesome because me personally i came to the realization that every game i've designed i also had a really big i don't know like a huge hand in coming up with the product whether it be the sizing mm -hmm. of things working with the manufacturer to figure out components or like kind of helping with the graphics or whatever i do think that graphics background really does help oh, absolutely. because you can visualize yeah you can like visualize what it's going to look like as a final product but also you can test the ui as you go through playtesting exactly and figure out what makes sense and what where works. Where does this information have to go people. on the card for the card to be, you know, optimally yep. useful. And, you know, it's exactly. when I, when I start designing a new game, part of my process really is to just kind of doodle out what 
do I think the end user experience looks like? Are we sitting at a table with a bunch of, you know, chits and tokens and meeples, or are we sitting at a table with multi-use cards that, you know, depending on how we turn them next to the board, they mean different things. So those are all, those are all things that I, I think about right from the very beginning in a very visual way. Because if I can picture how people are going to play the game and enjoy the game, everything else I do just needs to kind of point the needle towards that. No, I think that's great. Do you feel that you enjoy being able to have that much control over the products you're working on? You know, I do. Um, and and I, I don't like being a control freak. I like, yeah. I like being able to turn to the art team and say, you guys are really good at this. Show me something that's going to blow me away. And, and I think that there's a balance between being able to say, look, the, the UI UX of this game flows with the patterns of the, the gameplay for a reason. And I designed the cards this way, or I designed the board this way, or I chose these components for this reason. But I think once you get past that and you can say, this is how the game works, especially if you can sit down and play the game a few times with the art and production teams and say, you know, this is why it's important for this piece to fit with that piece or for this piece to be that size or for these things to fit around the edge of the board this way. And then just let them run with it and do some really cool stuff. I got some concept art back last week on a project that I've been working on. And all I could do was sit in my chair and just giggle at at how awesome it was because it it just went light years beyond what I'd imagined. I, I, I imagined people playing cards and doing X, Y, and Z, but then seeing, oh, wow, this is awesome concept art and it's not even finished. I can't even imagine what it's going to look like when it's completely done. Just, you know, it's so great to see other people's contributions dovetail into what I've been working on for so long and just add to that experience. Oh, for sure. And as far as the experience of the gameplay goes, do you prefer the two-player or do you prefer it at the higher player count? You know, for me, I think I tend to like two-player games. And some of that may just come from the fact that, you know, when when my wife and I get to sit down and play a game, it is just the two of us. That's evolving. Our son is eight now, so he more often wants a seat mm-hmm. at the table, uh, but his attention span is still a little on the short side. So if we sit down yeah. for... like we've, we've sat down and played Ark Nova with him. He gets it. He gets, wow. the, he gets the mechanics. He likes the way it all fits together. He just gets bored after the first... 40 minutes. And that's a game that can can take two hours, two and a half hours, even at two players. So I I think for me, almost from outside reasons, I like two player games more than I tend to gravitate towards large games. Now I'll, I'll play large games. I've played many, many games of Ark Nova now on board game arena with three or four players at a time. But for my own personal collection of games, I, like I, I like to play Magic two players. I, I don't enjoy uh, Commander group game Magic nearly as much as I enjoy just you know head to head one on one test of of skill and wit. There, you know. I totally get you. Do you enjoy working on IP games? You know, I, I almost don't think about it that way. It's 
in a lot of ways, IP games give me a great starting place and, and sort of a goal, very much like that, that visual, what is this game experience going to be at the end? With a Disney game, especially one like Sorcerer's Arena, knowing that everything is, is about those characters, my goal is then to make every character feel uniquely suited to that character's story. Mrs. Potts, for example, is not going to be a fighter. Why would we put her in a fighting arena game? Well, because yeah. she's a bard uh, when it comes down oh, to it. Nice. So yeah, she's she's there to sing her songs and serve up cards to other players or other, other characters on her team to use in ways that she can't necessarily use them herself. You know, Aladdin is a rogue, and the more roguelike I could make him feel, the better. And then... Robin Hood is also a rogue. So I look at that and go, what are the nuanced differences between the Aladdin style rogue and the Robin Hood style rogue? And, and how do I use elements of those characters and their stories to influence the mechanics of those characters? Something like It Evil Below that you'd mentioned at the beginning, that's a, that's a horror movie. How do, you, how do you take cardboard yeah. and paper and make it scary? How do we create jump scares in a, in a tabletop experience? And I found ways where, you know, push your luck die rolls are, are one way to do it. If you're, if you're looking at the dice and going, this is not good, this is not good, this is, oh, it just got worse. Like, that's the stress and the pressure that a jump scare movie carries. So if I can take game elements and, and approximate the sort of the, the visceral internal, the, the heartbeat, the racing, you know, racing heart and, and, and shallow breathing and, and all of these experiences that you get from a horror movie, then matching that game to that IP, I think can, can be, the success there can be measured in a quantifiable way. Man, I wish I had known you had worked on that game because I got contracted to work on kind of a scary game. And I also came to the conclusion that Push Your Luck is just a really good mechanic oh, yeah. for it because you never know when something stabby might yeah. happen. And so that and also take that. I use quite a bit of that yep. as well. But no, that's really cool. I think having an IP be kind of like a framework, but not necessarily on autopilot to build a game right. is great. Right. Now, like Die Hard, Die Hard, we, we looked at and we said, okay, the, the excitement of this movie is finding those, those touchstone moments from the movie. If you're a fan of the movie, you love yippee ki and you love ho, 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 I have a machine gun now. And you love the, the, the scene with, with uh, Uli stealing the Nestle Crunch bar from the newsstand. There's just these, these little moments in the movie that that stick with people and are, are their things that they connect with so we we stayed a lot more narrative on die hard just so that you could get people those moments in the game die hard is built in three acts you play through each of the acts john McClane is playing a 1v many game against the thieves slash terrorists and you don't get to play act two if if john doesn't beat act one and you don't get to play act three if john doesn't beat act two so the thieves are there basically to ruin John's day and make the game short. But that's the way the movie plays out. So yeah, we kind of we found a way to to match the the narrative of the IP to to a board game in a way that used the narrative in blocks that allowed some flexibility in the storytelling but still kept you on the rails enough that you hit the right story beats at the right times. 
I feel like that's super important. But okay, going back to our spotlight game, though, (laughs) we got a little derailed. It's all good. But with it, do you know how long it took you from that initial like, hey, this is the IP you're going to be working with to it being published and in the hands of customers? It was... It was 2019 when they first came to us, I would say spring 2019, when they said, hey, we've got this idea for, or or we've got this mobile game that we think would be a good tabletop game. They were still in a beta phase and the game that they had at that point actually looks very different from the game that's that's on the app store now. So I kind of took their initial pitch and noodled on it for a while in between other projects. I had a lot of other things going on in that stretch. And when they finally said, okay, we've got the game right where we need it to be, that was like January or February 2020. So when I put pen to paper and started making my notes and it's going to look like this and it's going to have these kinds of components, it was it was March or April 2020 working back at my my office at home rather than in the office in Carlsbad with other designers. And then from there, 2020, the game launched in June of 22 at Origins. So I I had this thing germinating for a good two, two and a half years before it ever hit the shelf. And what do you think was your favorite and your least favorite experience of that? Oh, least favorite experience is... And, and it, it comes up every couple of months with, with, you know, different expansions of the project is when I get an idea for a really cool card or ability mm-hmm. for a character, and then we run it by Disney and Disney says, yeah, it doesn't really fit the messaging for the character that we like. And you, you have to kind of take a step back and figure out, is it the mechanical thing that that character is doing that needs to get revisited or is it just the card name and art and concept aesthetically and sometimes it comes down to like there's just no good art reference for the the card that we want to to create that action never really happened that way in a movie so there's nothing that we can point back to and say hey disney that's the scene that we're thinking of so that's always that's always kind of the the roughest of rough spots the highlight, we had a Disney rep uh, at the very beginning of the project named Naomi, and she was a gamer, and so is a gamer. It's not like she stopped being a gamer. And I would bring her you know, pitch ideas, and they would just click for her. She saw them as clearly as I could describe them, better than I could describe them, and just got yeah. it right away. So one day I went to her and said, okay, I think it's time for us to put a necromancer in the game. And instead of getting the, uh, what I expected would be, um, Disney doesn't play with undead characters. No, Naomi looks at me and says, yeah. you're going to do the Horned King, aren't you? And I said, yeah, I'm going to do the Horned oh. King. And, and she got it. And it was, it was so awesome to have a partner from the other end that could so quickly kind of zero in on what that vision was that I had and just get it and be on that same wavelength. And then the, the the rest of the experience working with my brand manager, Carol, on this project. She is so well organized. She speaks Disney ease so well when we have to get stuff approved by Disney. Knowing that I have a partner in the project that backs me up 100% of the time and, and that I can 
work to, to, to give Carol what she needs from my end of the project and, and, and just have that fantastic partnership. As, as much as it'd be great to say, oh yeah, my favorite part of, of creating this game was designing character X. No, honestly, my favorite part of working on this game has been the people that I've gotten to work on the game with. Oh, I love that. I also love that it's Disney's. How, what is the language called? Disney's. I just made that up. That's not a real thing. Amazing. Nope. Shh, no, it's a thing now. It's been said online. Everything online is real. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> totally we get kidding. ourselves in trouble with uh, that. Yep. No, that's awesome. Well, then as far as I'm going to have this focused in on IP work since you've done a lot of this. And I feel like you in particular would be good for offering advice to designers Mm -hmm. that are working on IP stuff. What would your advice be for them? Oh, you know, you and I were both at uh, a thing at Gen Con this year. Uh, Matt Paquette set up his his uh, be creative social gathering. And I actually sat down with a couple of folks uh, and talked about IPs in games. I think the biggest thing about working with an IP in a game is understanding how the process of licensing works in the first place. I get a lot of people who say, hey, I've, I've got an idea for a Pokemon game. I'm going to make a board game about Pokemon and it'll do X, Y, and Z. And do you want to publish it for me? And the, the answer always has to come back. Well, first, you've got to know if the IP is being licensed out for that game in the first place. Pokemon frequently does not license their their property out for other board games or you know if you wanted to make a a a game about the rocky horror picture show we don't know if if the the owners of that license uh, are are looking to put it on a board game a lot of times you're better off coming up with something that feels like the general idea of an ip like if you wanted to make for example we'll, we'll go with we'll go with rocky horror picture show Maybe maybe your game has sing out loud moments and you build a game about sing out loud moments. Well, if you've got a game about sing out loud moments, it could be Rocky Horror, but it could also be any other you know, popular musical. It could be about the, the Once More With Feeling episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It could be about any... Oh my God, I remember that you know, episode. You know, it, it's, it's one of those big <laughs> yeah. musical things that people just remember. It it could be a game about Rogers the Musical. I just saw Rogers the Musical up at California Adventure the other day, and hmm. that was a blast. But yeah, I think I think if you start by trying to make your game too tightly bonded to a specific IP, yeah, like that's that's really cool. It's great to have a game about the Neverending Story or about you know the A Team or whatever. But if you're really looking to get it published, I think the goal there has to be be a little bit more open-ended in what IP could fit with the vibe of your game. Yeah, I definitely ran into that when I first started game design, but that's some awesome feedback and advice well, for fans. What's what's your dream IP? Well, before board games, I always wanted to work for DC Comics. Okay. So literally, if I ever designed anything with DC, that would be the dream. And the IP I started to try to work on was the Court of Owls specifically because I had a social deduction game I started working on. Now, this was early on. I want to take a second stab or I guess third stab at it, which is going to be one of the things I'm going to work on because I'm also a designer that I want to have multiple mechanics that I've done with my name on it because I am not a one-trick pony. So, yep. Well, that's awesome. Um, Yeah. 
But what about you? Do you have any cool games fans should be checking out soon? Cool games. That you can talk about? You know, so I work with Pat Marino uh, at the op and, and we've been bringing in a whole bunch of really awesome inventor games lately. This year at Gen Con, we were showing off uh, the Perfect Wave, which was designed by your booth was awesome. Yep, Jason Jason Mowry and, and Chase Williams. Uh, and yeah, we we had a lot of fun promoting that game this year. The the whole Tiki Surf booth was just thematically fantastic. I think we won an award for it. Oh, amazing! But then there's a whole bunch of other inventor games that are coming up soon. Some that are going to be announced sooner than others. But uh, I, I think 2024 is going to be a really, really exciting year for hobby games from the op. And even 25, we've got, we've got stuff. We've got stuff so good stacked up that like it spills over into the next year. I mean, that's like most publishers I talk yeah. to. Anytime I pitch, they're like, so yeah, I mean, if you want to sign it, you're going to see it in like four yeah, years. Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> oh my gosh. I mean, exciting for all the people that are playing the games for someone trying to get into design. A little hard. A little yeah, hard it, I, I, you know, I got into the industry sort of through a side door being useful as a graphic designer for a publisher that needed graphic design done. I can't even imagine what it's like to just be a freelancer trying to, to hit the pavement, knock on every door and get your games pitched uh, wherever you can. And, and, and the thing is, I've done some of that when I was at Forrest Prezan. Uh, I would go to Nuremberg, Germany with my boss, Andy Forrest, and just do a week of just constantly running around a convention center, pitch, pitch yeah. meeting after pitch meeting. Very familiar. Um, <laughs> but I always had that, that secondary skill in graphic design that the studio needed to fall back on. So I never felt the, I guess, urgency of needing to land those, those contracts. And I have a ton of respect for anyone that does that as, as sort of their, their day job or their, their primary mode, just always being inventing and always pitching and, and always getting those contracts. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. I am one of those people, but also it is not easy. I know. I always show up with new games, but not a lot of time when you work a full-time yeah. job on top of the design on the side, but awesome. Well, hey, then for my final question, completely unrelated to anything we've already sure. talked about, if you could have been the designer of a game that you did not design, what game would it be and why? <sighs> I'm going to go with one that is maybe more of an emotional answer than anything else. Love My it. family loves playing Blockus together. And I think Blockus is one of those games that is just so freaking elegant in how it works. Do you know, are you familiar with Blockus? Um, Blockus is one of my favorite games growing okay, up. Okay, there you go. And I, yeah, I'm big into spatial and I'm into like abstract, it is, so yes. It is so elegant in how it works. It's such a simple concept and it is absolutely beautiful in its execution. If I could have a game like Blockus in my portfolio that, that's just so uber accessible, but deep in, in how strategically you can, you can play it how casual you can play it, how cutthroat you can play it. It's just such a versatile game that way. And I encourage anyone that has ever overlooked Blockus to give it a to give it a look and play it because it is it is so much fun. 
I agree. My family wouldn't play it with me as a kid, though, because I always won. <laughs> so I actually have my original copy from when I was younger. It's in my apartment. It's like one of the few things that came with me to college yeah. and then came with me on every move I've yeah. made. So, yes, I am still a fan. Actually, now that makes me want to play that tomorrow. I might play that tomorrow. I'm, glad I, I'm glad I had one that resonated for you, too. Yeah. No, that like brings back my childhood. I love it. I appreciate that answer. Well, all right. So then everyone who's been listening, thanks for joining us for this episode of Game Design Unboxed, Inspiration to Publication, Episode 72, Disney Sorcerer's Arena, Epic Alliances. And thanks again, Sean, for joining us. Is there anywhere online that you can be reached if you want to be reached? Uh, if you look me up on Twitter or, or X, it's it's still Twitter. You can call it. I'm calling it Twitter. Twitter. It feels creepy when it pops up on my watch's X yeah. and I feel like I opted into something. Yeah, I don't know. I don't like, like it. It's it's emo in a way that didn't need to be emo. Uh, I am at Game Maker Fletch on uh, on Twitter, and I think I'm also I think I think I've also got that on Blue Sky. So if you're going if you're going the Blue Sky route, you can find me there too. Oh sweet! I just got one of those, and I have no idea who to follow. So I will follow you. Sweet! For sure. I'll look you up there too. Yay! And you can find me Danielle Reynolds on Blue Sky now X or Twitter, whatever we're calling it. Instagram under the username token gamer and that's G-A-Y-M-E-R. So thanks again for everyone who listened and thanks Sean for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Sure. So if you're listening to this podcast, I imagine you probably have an interest in creating board games. And if you're like me, that also means you want to bring your designs to life and into the hands of gamers. There's only one problem. Doing that requires manufacturing in large quantities, which is why I'm excited that today's podcast is brought to you by Launch Tabletop. If you want retail quality board games for prototyping demos, promos, or retail with no minimum order quantity, yes, even a single copy, Launch Tabletop has you covered. With Launch Tabletop's print-on-demand service, Launch Lab, you no longer need a warehouse full of stock or produce more than you can afford. Launch Lab offers fast turnaround for board game production, and its online system allows you to configure your game components and get a quote instantly. Then start placing your order in just a few simple steps. Launch Tabletop is offering 20% off for your first order by going to launchtabletop.com and using promo code GDU20 when checking out. The special discount is valid through 2023. Launch your next game project into the stratosphere with retail quality games at no minimums with Launch Tabletop today. Thank you for joining Danielle for another episode of Game Design Unboxed, inspiration to publication. If you'd like to hear more great gaming podcasts, check out nodirectionpodcast.com. And if you're looking for a great board game, bag, playback, or gaming table, check out All Play at letsallplay.com. Join us next time.